You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 154, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me to explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Monica Gandhi, who returns to the show since our last discussion back in June of 2021. We talked then about Delta variant and what that might mean, and we leaned on our expertise with T-cells and B-cells, long-lasting immunity, and what she just said then was pretty much what played out over time, that the Delta was obviously more infectious, would become the dominant strain. However, we'd still have long-range protection from vaccination or previous infection. And so we're going to discuss today... Her stances on mandates, what the point of them are, potentially what Omicron is about, and also we're going to get into the therapeutics, the new really exciting Proteus inhibitors that are now being introduced for specifically COVID-19. But the technology is obviously there to possibly treat other viruses. What I enjoy the most about talking to Dr. Monica Gandhi, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to as well, is the fact that she's a warm individual, but also she's thinking, willing to discuss ideas that are in opposition to her previous thoughts. And we're going to discuss mandates. She was definitely someone who's in favor of vaccine mandates, mask mandates. And through our conversation today, it becomes pretty clear that she's willing to rethink those and agrees that most of them are probably fairly ineffective and comes with a lot of costs, especially when you look at vaccine uptake and other things like regular childhood vaccines, but also just general trust in public health officials and physicians. Finally, we're going to talk about therapeutics. She's obviously an expert in protease inhibitors, which is what pretty much HIV is treated with, and the new protease inhibitors to treat COVID-19 are really exciting, and I think ones that if COVID-19 ends up being virulent for a long time, meaning dangerous, then certainly these are going to be very helpful, which finally gets us to one part where we talk about Omicron, and I think we have some very encouraging news that potentially, and as each day goes by, it seems more likely that this is a more benign virus, and this is our transition from SARS-CoV-2 from a Deadly Killer to the Common Cold, which is the title of the book that I narrated for Dr. David Graham, who's been on the show a number of times. That'll be linked in the show notes, and you can find the rest of those links, especially to Dr. Monica Gandhi's Twitter feed, which is excellent, and I'd highly recommend you check it out and subscribe or follow her, I guess. You can find all those at theparadox.com slash 154. Finally, thanks again for all the new listeners and subscribers from the We Are Libertarians Network. But without further ado, Dr. Monica Gandhi and Rethinking Vaccine Mandates, and the future of COVID-19 with the new Omicron variant. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my friend, Dr. Monica Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi returns me from episode 132 way back in June. I mean, the pandemic seemed totally different back then, but thanks for turning the show. She's now the, uh, she's still, I should say, she's still the head of the HIV clinic at USCSF. And yes. we're going to talk about, well, your favorite thing, T-cells, B-cells, yes. right? Immunity. <laughs> Let's just talk, talk about when we talked back in June, we were talking about Delta. I mean, that's like, what, 10 Greek letters ago, and now there's a new one. That came <laughs> uh, has, your, has your thinking changed at all from Delta? Because, you know, the, initially when we talked, I think we were, there was still some uh, concern or consideration that the vaccines might not work and those sorts of things. My feeling is it's been pretty much the same. It, how do you feel about Delta from our conversation then? Yeah, I mean, nothing that I said about Delta was uh, didn't actually come true in the sense that... Um, 
and, and many others, but it, it, it is, was more transmissible. Maybe Omicron is more transmissible too, but, but, but can variants evade vaccines is the fundamental question because then we're like, we'll never get out of this. Then we're ruined. Um, but, but luckily they, they, I don't see a way for them to evade vaccines. And, and that showed up during Delta. I mean, we absolutely got more cases um, across the United States, even in places of high vaccination, like the Bay area, but cases are, I mean, our antibodies coming down in the nose. So you can right. get mild infection in your nose because what happens after your vaccination is antibodies have to go down. They have to, it's totally natural, totally normal. And they, um, I keep on thinking of like, if I had every antibody in my bloodstream that I've ever up to every infection I've seen since I was zero, I would not be able to move. So like, yes, antibodies will go down. But um, the B cells are the templates. They're the recipe book to make more antibodies aided by T cells whenever they need it, whenever they see the variant, a, a, a virus in the future. And T cells can last, what, 34 years, 17 years, and they can last a long time. We have really good data from SARS, from measles vaccination, probably lifelong. So T cells are there to protect you against severe disease. So if you see a variant and your antibodies have come down, it seems really simple that yes, it'll probably come down in your nose, the IgA antibodies and your IgG that go into your nose. So you may get a mild breakthrough infection, which would be more up in this area, upper respiratory tract infection. But your T cells that are in your lower respiratory tract are still protecting you from severe disease. And the B cells, it'll take a few days, it'll take probably three to five days. They'll make more antibodies and they will protect you and they'll bring your viral load down. And those antibodies they produce will be directed against the variant that they see. That like blows my mind. And, and, and we have the data from the science paper that they can make directed antibodies against Delta. I don't see why they wouldn't make directed antibodies against Omicron. Yeah. Well, I, I guess, it, tell me how the, I guess how accurate this, this summary is of sort of my understanding of the immune system. So uh, we are, because we're social creatures, we're around other people all the time. We're always spreading these pathogens, these, uh, rhinovirus, adenovirus, all these common cold viruses, we have probably developed long-term immunity to all of these. They're all going to have various mutations, we'll call them, uh, you know, variants, we'll call them now. Sort of the, and, um, and so the, the body recognizes these. And then when there's a local epidemic, which you have, you have the bug that's going around that people talk about that goes through the school or through your work off your office, uh, you have, naturally, you would produce antibodies in your body, you think from an evolutionary standpoint, it'd be useful to have high antibody levels for a while until that yes. epidemic is sort of passed out of the area, right? Yes. And then, and but then you're, it would naturally go away because at some point you're going to need antibodies from something else. And like you said, yes. you, there's no point having high viscosity in your blood and having molasses yes. right in your bloodstream. <laughs> yes, exactly. But that you still have that long-term immunity. And like you mentioned, there's really cool is that you can see something similar and your body can even then recognize something that it hasn't even really true technically seen before and yet still have an antibody response to get you over the next thing. And presumably it would prevent you from getting the lower respiratory infection, the pneumonia is sort of the, the severe respiratory the problems, severe. The, the reaction that gets you from COVID, right? From people who are naive to ever being uh, exposed to it in the, in the past. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of how the body was designed, right? It's, I mean, it it's seems like that it's, was how it was designed. That's actually normal, why yeah. it's called adaptive immunity. <laughs> Yeah. The word adaptive yeah. is because you will adapt and make those antibodies um, to adapt to the little variations that it may have across its spike protein, but you will adapt and make the right kind of antibodies because it's not like a B cell is sitting there hiding its antibodies inside itself. It will produce them adaptively against what it's it sees in front of it. And that is the variant. Yeah. So we, we didn't, Delta did not prove in any way it wasn't a disaster in high vaccinated places. It was a disaster in low vaccinated places. And the same will happen with Omicron. And, and we should have learned our lesson, of course, and, and gotten the vaccines out better globally um, so that Omicron didn't have to come out. But I'm not, I don't see it even touching places with high vaccination, not much. Oh, may cause cases, but that's where we have to get away from the, what's going to be our metric of success now? Right. Okay. So, so let's set the ground rules. So what we have, we're, we're, um, we agree on some sort of starting point. So I think we agree this is that SARS-CoV-2, which is causes COVID-19, is going to be endemic. You could say it's, you know, sort of endemic now. Everybody's going to be exposed to yes. it probably multiple times in their life. 
Yes. There's going to be multiple variants throughout history. It'll be here when we're not here anymore. I mean, as yes. you and me personally, right? That's a very good ground rule to set what you just said, because it's just reality. It's, it, it isn't, it's, it's endemic now. And any thought that we can, can eradicate it is I actually think it's irresponsible. It's an irresponsible thought because the kind of eradication techniques that we used before, which would keeping away from people, keeping schools closed, uh, keeping children not educated. I mean, th that's dangerous actually in my mind. So you're right, we can't eradicate it. And uh, anyway, even if we did all that, we couldn't eradicate it. It's, right. it's a, this is a virus. So yes, endemic. Yeah, and I've mentioned it before on the show that I think 60 to 80% of the deer in the state of Michigan have had COVID and they actually can That's circulate right. and spread it. Uh, I don't right. know any who's out there hanging out with deer, but somehow they've gotten it and I, you know, probably from another mammal. But uh, so, and I think, you know, the other thing is there are breakthroughs and I kind of hate that term. It just is, um, it makes it sound like there's some sort of failure at some point in your immune system. But I think it's a recognition that there'll be, you will get infections, but you're not going to get severely ill, right? So right. Uh, no matter how much, how many times you've been exposed to it, how many times you've been vaccinated, boosted or whatever, you're still going to always be susceptible at some point when your antibodies are see low it to, get, to yeah. get it again and to get an infection. You know, maybe you're isolated. You don't see people, you're a hermit, you don't, or some, maybe you're out a lot. You get it a lot of times. And so, I mean, I've seen patients who've had it multiple times. I've had patients who've been double vaccinated, boosted, whatever, and still, you know, three weeks after the booster, they still get it. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's, yes. I think we can agree that people are going to continue getting affected with this and there's nothing we do to stop that, which you had I mentioned agree. before, that there could be cases. Um, <clears throat> but that we also agree that there's a protection from vaccines and or natural infection where you clear the, where you clear the virus, you know, if you've been exposed in the before. And so that will provide some sort of protection. Nothing's hundred percent. Against what we, what we are most fearing though. It provides right. the most yeah, yeah. important protection in a way. I mean, why did we even notice this virus? Um, uh, I wouldn't have noticed it if it had caused a cold. I would have gone on my day and about other infectious diseases um, uh, as an infectious disease doctor. So we noticed this because it caused severe disease. So if you get over that hump that you can protect yourself from that, that to me is an amazing success. Sure. Yeah. And I think we can also agree COVID sucks. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's caused lots of morbidity, mortality, yes. obviously. Yes. yes. Um, and so now that we, I think we can agree with those, those sort of things as far as where we are in the state of the pandemic, where the, you know, where SARS-CoV-2 is. And so I want to try and understand mandates because, and travel restrictions and massing and certain policies and, and to try and understand the logic behind these, because I struggle to understand them. Um, and I guess this is where I, what I'll say about, let's just talk, start with mandates. Uh, we understand that I mean, all the things we just talked about, those are all going to happen. And so I'm, tr I'm trying to understand why vaccination, why we feel like we should mandate vaccination, because it seems to me that vaccinations primarily are the ones protecting the individual who's getting vaccinated. I, I think that's where most of the protection is. I mean, obviously, if you're vaccinated, you know, soon after you have high antibody levels, you're probably less likely to spread it. I mean, but we know that it wanes. We know that at some point you're susceptible. I mean, we clearly have plenty of evidence that people are getting are spreading it who are vaccinated, boosted, and whatever. Uh, so what is the what is the rationale for making people get vaccinated? Because I do understand that there's a loss of resource, uh, there's a resource allocation problem in hospitals that if all the people are filling up with who are unvaccinated, who are getting Delta or whatever the COVID strain is, that people can't get, you know, taking care of their stroke, their heart attacks, those sort, you know, the trauma, whatever. But at some point, you know, soon, everyone will at least have had long-term immunity. And I always hate, we have to sort of, I guess, <laughs> use this. We have short-term immunity, long-term immunity, but they will have at least the protection from the severe disease most likely soon, either through vaccination or through infection. So what is the, why would you mandate vac vaccinations at that point? I, I guess I'm just, I'm struggling to see why it's so important to get all these people vaccinated because whatever you may gain by mandating it, you're going to get people who are going to go to the ends of the earth to avoid, avoid it. And so, you know, it, you burn a lot of trust with the public by mandating something that I think, you know, ultimately you're going to get anyway. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think what you're asking is such a very good question because um, I will say that I, it, it, I'm, a, I'm a good person to talk to about what, you, what we're both going to talk about, which is vaccine mandates and mass mandates, because I actually propounded both um, at a certain point in this pandemic. And 
the uh, and I'm also one who is willing to take data and take an understanding of human nature and change my mind um, as well. And and so I think I'm really glad. I didn't know that's exactly what we were talking about, but I'm really glad that we're going to talk about this because it's a very fair thing that what I have seen through the course of this pandemic, and I keep on thinking about HIV because um, I'm a H- longstanding HIV doctor, is I've never seen such a lack of trust uh, by the public of, pe- of, of the, the government. And I have never seen such politicization of, of a pandemic. And I truly think that people are frightened to take the vaccine, because, some people, because they are hearing things that it's very dangerous, that they hear that from people that I don't think it's dangerous at all. I think it's very safe, but I think that they hear that and they're truly frightened. And so the idea of a vaccine mandate actually truly frightens them. And the mRNA vaccine technology seems new and it's been mis there's misinformation about it. And if we had Novavax, which is this, you know, very traditional vaccine, which is just a protein and an adjuvant, we probably would have gotten a lot more people vaccinated. There's something about the word mRNA that's scaring people, which again, I think it works fine. So I have changed my mind about the idea of vaccine mandates. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've actually, it's really interesting that you brought it up today because I've been thinking about it over the last week is that number one, of course, natural immunity will give you protection. Um, That is um, not acknowledged in the United States, but since it's acknowledged in every single other country on the planet, we can very well say that it's not science, um, it's politics. Something is going on politically here to not to acknowledge natural immunity. Switzerland just said, you just have to show us a PCR test that you've been COVID infected in 365 days and we'll evaluate at that point if you even need a vaccine then. But you're the same as someone who's vaccinated. Germany actually did something pretty harsh, which is lock down the unvaccinated, but they didn't lock down people with natural infections. So if you've had recovery, you're just as free to go about your um, day as, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that's a, a good strategy. Either. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but they're acknowledging natural immunity. Um, and not acknowledging recovery and the process of long-term immunity from recovery. So number one, I don't think that a mandate should be applied to someone who've had, who's had COVID. And in fact, I think that um, the many people who have really put themselves on the front line um, and, and worked as nurses and, and hospital workers and, and um, frontline workers have had COVID. And so they uh, being asked to take a mask vaccine mandate or they'll get fired seems tremendously unfair. And then I have been thinking and I've been really turning over in my mind because I did write an article on vaccine mandates saying that they think they were the right thing to do. This is maybe two and a half months ago. But I have been turning over in my mind exactly what you just said, which is that we are burning trust. And when I look at the burning of trust, which is true of many, at many levels, it is really worrying me about our ability to fight other infectious diseases, measles um, uh, uh, or HIV or STDs or TB or malaria or anything that we have to deal with that if we burn this much of trust and if we politicize. So I guess I have to leave it at that. I am opening to exactly what you just said. I'm not sure at this point with this much infection, people are gonna get it or they're gonna get the vaccine and um, that we should be doing vaccine mandates. Yeah. Well, and I, I struggle, you know, when, when initially the, the mandates sort of sort of coming down with, for the, for healthcare workers, I could, I, I could understand the, the argument that, you know, you want to have, you have people who are at risk in hospitals that can't avoid the public, right? Like, you know, if you're someone who's immune compromised, you can avoid putting yourself in risky situations, but obviously if you're in the hospital, you're there because you're, you know, that, yeah, so and I agree with you about that population, like healthcare workers getting that vaccinated. I think that's a, the right thing. To, yeah, I'm but in. see, and even now, I'm I'm rethinking that because I'm thinking to myself. <laughs> well, I mean, because if you think about it, uh, we've I think pretty definitively seen that if you're vaccinated, even if you're boosted, you're yes, it's slightly less that you're going to be transmitting to someone, but you're still transmitting to people all the time. And so, I don't know that you're really gaining a whole lot except losing healthcare workers, which we've lost a quarter of our 20%, 25% of healthcare workers in the last two years in the United States. I mean, that is terrible it's amazing. And, lost. Yeah. And, and I don't know what you're gaining by doing this, right? Like, it's not like you're making people significantly safer. I, I, I just am struggling. I mean, I think early on, absolutely vaccines do block transmission because like you said, so does natural immunity because it, it's so simple. It's just about antibodies being plump in your nose. And yeah, so right. 
in your nose, you're not able to get even a little bit of virus in, and then you're not able to pass it on. But with time, we have really seen, and there's no doubt, and it's not even, we didn't have to learn this from COVID, that the come down. They were plumping your nose. Now they're not plumping your nose. They're uh, they're not going into your nose. But but that your but your long term immunity there is to protect you from severe disease. But you may still be able to transmit. Yeah, that's fair. It's fair. Yeah, I, I I have I struggle with that. I mean, I understand. So like with a flu vaccine, for instance, which to your point earlier, I mean, when you talk about trust, and, and I think you know, I don't know vaccine fatigue is that a thing? But maybe it is. We have, we're about twenty percent vaccination in the state of Michigan right now. This year, time last year, we we're at thirty percent. Uh, so we're third less. We're third behind, and you know it's already hit Michigan, which is unusual for University well, of Michigan had an outbreak. Right? Well, yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah. my wife's yeah. a pediatrician, and she's seen about equal parts COVID and flu in her clinic. Um, uh, so it's here, right? Yeah, uh, which is I think going to make it challenging winter for us. I don't think it's going to be tough to get it out of this uh, as far as hospital capacity because we're you know busting the seams. Uh, but you know I th- I see think people are less likely to get that vaccine or, and they're, and then you're missing all the usual things like measles. And like you mentioned earlier, all those other vaccines. And so I worry about the, the other costs that the, that this sort of mandate does and what you actually gain from it is probably not significant enough to make, to, to the loss of trust. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a cost benefit analysis someone has to make, but I think the biggest problem, and I think this comes from public health officials actually, is that they gave, hopeful uh you know analysis initially that hey if you're vaccinated we're going to stop the spread of this pand- this this pandemic we're going to stop it when instead they should have said the initial endpoints were preventing serious infection and hospitalization that's what the vaccine does and that's actually what most vaccines do i mean that's even what the flu vaccine pretty much does too right it pretty much keeps you from getting really sick you're probably less likely to transmit it but you're not going to get as sick with the flu uh, but to give this impression that it's going to stop the pandemic. And then when it doesn't, people think, well, it's not working or I got to wait till I get the right one. Or now we have to do all these crazy measures that we weren't working before. We're going to go back to them because now like our plan A is gone. And so we have to, right. <laughs> right. right. Well, I, t- I, you're okay. So you make two really incredibly good points. One is that that impression that we gave, again, if we'd just gone back to primary immunology, like right soon after vaccination, um, where there's high antibodies, or right even soon after an infection, it is very likely that you can transmit. So there was a lot of time where the transmission had slowed. Um, and then people, just time went on. It wasn't even Delta. I mean, Delta has a higher viral yeah, load. Right. I don't think it's Delta, it's just time went on. And Omicron time has even gone on longer. Um, and so, so it was just kind of a fundamental, I think, um, not understanding immunology that fundamentally what's there underneath is going to still protect you from what we care about most and not acting like what we cared about most in the world as physicians because you and i are physicians and so are many public health officials what you and i should care about is is disease we have to care about disease we have to care about preventing disease that we can't we don't want people to get sick and be in the hospital and somehow it got it got linked with caring about transmission it actually got linked our, our public health goal got linked with caring about transmission. Why? Because in the past, cases used to track with hospitalization. So cases would go up and hospitalizations would predictably go up afterwards because there was no immunity in the population. Right. Yeah. And now with Delta, at least with high vaccinated places, cases go up and hospitalizations stay down um, or they, or they, you know, they're much, much lower. And so they, but we're still focused on, um, preventing cases. We're still focused on no matter what breaking trains of chains of transmission. And so when you're talking about what you're going to talk about next, because you are intimating, why are we trying to go back to things that were there to break trains of transmission, which are fundamentally mass distancing, ventilation, contact tracing, testing. Um, these were the five ways to just kind of stave off things, get, get away from it, do as much as we can. We were waiting for vaccines. If we try to go back to this, when we have vaccines, then we are only thinking about transmission. And then we're not thinking about what we used to think about in, in, in as doctors, which was disease. I'm, I'm really struggling to figure out why we got to this point because Dr. Fauci, for instance, smart guy. I don't think anyone would, would question that he's not smart. Right. And, and he sets the tone. He sets the, I guess the general gist of sort of where we're headed this seems very fundamental to me, like that 
you know, we should not be focusing on transmission. It would seem like it'd be very simple for him to say, hey, we're worried about severe disease, ICU, ICU stays, hospitalizations. That's what the vaccine does. We never expected it to stop all transmission in its, in its tracks. I mean, I understand why a politician doesn't know this, right? They don't understand. People say, oh, well, if you're vaccinated from polio, no one has polio anymore. That's what vaccines must do. With an, not recognizing different vaccines, different disease viruses, right? I mean, all those things are- It's not right. just that. Um, you know, what's interesting is if there was a measles outbreak, because there have been measles outbreaks- there, And, and there will be now with it, yeah. Yeah, and there will be more now because we sure, have yeah. vaccine, because of lockdowns, we have decreased uh, measles vaccinations. Um, and and stopped medical care. Um, if you swabbed everyone's nose around that measles outbreak, though some people out there near in a store were feeling well, and this person's feeling well, and this aunt is feeling fine, you would see measles in their nose. You would. Um, so we always focused on on with respiratory pathogens prior to this. We always focused on manifestations of disease. Yeah, and I and I think it even was it. I think with the oral oral polio vaccine, that was actually one that you still would transmit freely between people, but you, you wanted prevented- to transmit it. The reason right. that oral polio vaccines used in, in, in low income countries is because part of it is getting polio out of your stool and spreading and, and having the vaccine, you know, vaccination around it's, it's why they don't, we don't use inactivated vaccines in many places we use that shot, but we use oral polio to get it out. Right. So, I mean, I think I feel like it, again, I'm just puzzled. I don't quite understand why people who are, I think very smart, you know, immunologists or biologists—they don't seem to have—they don't seem to be directing this conversation. They seem to have sort of fallen to the camp. The cases count. You know, like we don't want—we want to stop all transmissions. Which, I mean, it's—it's a—it's fool's gold, right? If you're not—if you can't eradicate this virus, which we've established, you can't. I think anyone, um, pretty much anybody at this point, is is accepting that who is paying attention. I, don't, I mean, I don't have an explanation. Yeah. I don't have an explanation yeah. for why it's like this, but it. I, and I don't know if you can go back at this point. It's political. It's political. It's political. I don't. Th- I don't think there's any other way to say it. Like, th- there's. How does no- that happen, though? Right? I mean, how does it? How does it anti Fauci? How does it become political? That his job is not to be political. Well, I th- okay. So I think what ha- this is what I. I I'm just gonna like spell out what I think happened. Yeah, sure. We can, we're just we're, is, we're all speculating is, anyway, right? We're yeah. speculating. I'm just gonna cleanly say what I think happened. Uh, Trump and. At the beginning, Boris Johnson, but he changed. And the Brazil uh, president, uh, prime minister, like certain um, politicians got associated with minimizing COVID. Absolutely right. So Trump seemed like he was minimizing COVID. So the impulse from public health officials, including infectious disease doctors, was to do everything we can to, to fight against that minimization by saying, no, the entire point in life is to stop the change of transmission. That's what we have to do. And so got really, really um, profoundly political about what I mean, political, like, I mean, we did it for the right reasons at the beginning, but mass distance and ventilation testing, contact tracing, because that's all we have. And so it was like, okay, we have to do these. And not only do we have to do these, but if anyone questions this, then, and says, well, actually mass, like, I mean, they work well in, in like in vitro studies, but are they really working on a population level? Because right. for an individual who's high risk to really wear something very strong and an N95, but does it really working on like putting mandates in on a population level and what people are wearing them in all sorts of ways and all sorts of masks. But anyway, we just, it was, it was, and we also are very simplistic in our messaging. So we just said mask. We didn't say like what kind of mask. So we just said mask. So it was five things. And then we got vaccines and actually with time learned that we're not going to block transmission and it's actually about disease anyway and that it always was about disease so we could actually be okay right now we could be thinking we have vaccines we're getting therapeutics that's the way out of the pandemic but the political aspect was this these five strategies mass distancing ventilation to contact tracing testing were in response to what we said well you're minimizing it and we're and people are getting stuck they're getting stuck on old strategies and thinking that we can block transmission because we can put in testing, contact tracing, masking, distancing, ventilation again right now for Omicron, but we still didn't stop it. We could, they couldn't even stop it when they, in places where they closed off the whole island and never let anyone see themselves and, and still Delta got in. I mean, that's why Australia and, and New Zealand and Singapore abandoned their elimination strategies. It's just not possible. It's a highly, 
transmissible respiratory virus. So I will say to you that Singapore has gone to a hospitalization metric. They totally, they used to be all about elimination. They figured it out. They figured out that you can't stop a highly transmissible virus. They stopped counting cases and now they're all on hospitalization metric. They just changed in like two weeks and they're being completely reasonable. So I'm just thinking it must be politics here because of Trump. It's reaction to Trump. Yeah, and I and I agree with you that yeah, I I totally agree with you that it, when you look and I will admit I'm I'm you know really familiar with the United States politics. I'm obviously not very familiar with the rest of the world. I don't really know what drives you know their prime minister or whoever, but it seems like the world in general has the same adoption of pretty much stopping transmission. You look at Germany now has locked down anyone who's unvaccinated. Okay, yeah, right, you're right. Right, and maybe they all kind of talk to each other and they all have just sort. Maybe there's a general ideology, or, but I don't think it's driven totally by Trump. I feel like definitely it was worse here in this country because it was an election year and the Democrats were sort of maybe desperate and they had a, you know, anytime you have a political party, there's a chance to get an edge. They go with it and it, you know, COVID looked like a good thing and so they kind of pushed it. But it wasn't just here that that happened. I mean, maybe. No, you're right. I, I mean, you're culturally, right. we certainly dominate the world. And so there's, you know, I, I grant that maybe we influence other world leaders in the UN and the WHO and stuff, but still it seems like it's, it seems like it's generally a global phenomenon. I mean, you mentioned Singapore. I didn't know that. And that's interesting that they've moved to that sort of policy. But I mean, I don't even understand vaccine mandates or not a vaccine, vaccine passports. It doesn't make any sense to me because, you know, it's like for, clearly like a travel ban for any sort of variant is totally ludicrous because you have something that's more transmissible than previous things where we had travel bans and clearly it didn't work then. So there's no way it'd work now. It'd be even less effective, right? Even, yeah, yeah, especially if you just, and especially right now, we're just doing travel bans to countries with Black people in them. I mean, I'm just to be honest, like, yeah, I sure. really understand right now it's quite clear that we're decided on a travel ban to Sub-Saharan Africa, but not all the other multi-countries because every single country probably has Omicron in it. We didn't do travel bans against them, so what's right. oh, I know. not looking but, good. It's not a good look. It, it certainly shows you how slow government moves, right? Like when it comes to actually, bureaucracy moves slowly. Uh, but can you make sense to me to like a, a vaccine passport? I don't understand it. Like uh, we've already talked about all the reasons why you can still get transmission. It seems like a desperate attempt to prevent transmission. I, and again, I think I the think, vaccines. I will I, tell you, I think you're right. I think everything that you're saying is right. It okay. made sense to me at the beginning, though. It did because early after vaccines, after giving vaccines with plump antibodies, it did stop transmission. We got really low cases in multiple regions, including the United States with high vac relatively high vaccination, even at a 60% vaccination rate, like 54 yeah, right. low rates. And it worked really well because that's immunology like that. It did work for well for a while and it blocked transmission. So actually in that case, at that point in time, which whereas a lot of countries put in vaccine passports and mandates like Italy and France and Switzerland and so forth, they put it in right there. But now, unless you boost people, you know, give them additional vaccines like every eight weeks or however long it takes for <laughs> antibodies, which I don't even know what, what that would do, you know, yeah, health right. um, but if you gave someone vaccines repeatedly, I'm sure you could block transmission by multiple vaccines, but we've never done that for anything because we, we don't know the effects of that. There's no safety on that. Um, so, so you're right. Now we are in a different situation. Antibodies wane and T cell immunity and B cell immunity stays. We'll be able to always fight variants through those means. But these other metrics of trying to block transmission are not only not working, but what I'm concerned about is they're burning public health trust. And then the third thing that I'm concerned about is that they're the collateral damage of these other me measures, like people not being able to um, travel after they've been apart for a long time, the, the, lock, the, the effects of lockdowns on other healthcare systems. I believe the governor of New York said last week that she wants to cancel elective surgeries. I mean, I've been thinking none of, I, I know from you and I know as doctors, none of those were really elective surgeries. Surgery is not like, hey, I'll just do it, I'm ready. Like usually surgeries are like removing a tumor. I mean, yeah. honestly, like I've, I've, we've been around medicine a long time. Surgeries are very important. And so blocking medical care, um, to try to block transmission, which wouldn't be effective anyway, because we couldn't, because these aren't as effective strategies as vaccines and therapeutics to end the pandemic or or quell the pandemic. Um, we're going to get into very, we are have already gotten into dangerous territory. There's been multiple examples of cardiovascular disease, heart disease, cancer, strokes, other things being ignored if we cut, if we cut down on medical care. 
Yeah, and I can only just anecdotally say for my, my wife, the mental illness that she's seen in kids, she's never seen. I mean, uh, that is anxiety, so anxiety, depression, suicide. I mean, it's been truly terrible. It makes her job really hard. So let's 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 pivot a little bit to talk about Omicron, which I will say and I've mentioned this before in the show. It is my favorite variant because it has the best Greek name um, outside of <laughs> I, I was an engineer. And so we used all the Greek letters for different things in our equations. We never did use Omicron, though, because it's a just O and you can't really use it in, in engineering. <laughs> but uh, of course, the second best Greek letter is pi. So I can't wait till we have COVID pi variant. But uh, now this we're leaving you Thanksgiving. Uh so when it we comes, have to, pie, yeah, at some point. Coming, well, yeah. So when I we looked at this long time ago, when I say we, I meant Dr. Dave Graham and I, when we first discussed this back in April of last year, we knew that there'd be variants and new things would change. And generally speaking, uh, you know, things will change, but it will probably become more transmissible because that's going to be increase the fitness of the the pathogen to infect people and to replicate and then to infect other people. That's really all the virus cares about. It doesn't care if you grow hair on your face, if you go bald, as long as you have an opportunity to get the next person infected, that's really all the virus cares about. The way right? I say it is it, the virus wants to make more baby viruses. Right, I mean, exactly. What we all want to do in an evolutionarily speaking way. Right. I mean, that's kind of the point of existence. Yeah. yeah. And it wants to get to the next womb, right? In this case, yeah. another host. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there's no reason to think that the virus, every time there's a new variant that becomes more infectious, that is also going to become more virulent. That's going to be more deadly. I mean, it's entirely possible that it becomes less Right. I mean, it, that's why there's this question whether Omicron, I mean, this could be a gift from us to us. Right. It could be something that's super uh, infectious, gets going to affect everybody. And yet maybe it won't get hardly anyone sick. Maybe we'll get really lucky or less sick than before. I mean, it's, we are right? at that point of hope that it really could be at least by early signs. See, I mean, you're right that that, you know, the one thing I keep on, I'm sort of insulted that people are questioning what South African doctors are saying on that ground because I, I know a lot of these physicians because um, I've been in HIV research. So I literally know the people who are saying, wow, I'm seeing more mild disease and it's among the unvaccinated and it's more mild. I mean, of course, as cases go up, hospitalizations will go up, but but it's the more mild disease in the hospital. And for them, they're saying it. I mean, they, they, they're saying it right now. And I wouldn't question that since these are people on the ground working and we trust our fellow doctors. So Yes, it would. It could be an amazing thing if this is less virulent and more transmissible. That is a way to kind of almost blanket immunize, um, you know, yeah. the world with a safe, safe virus. Right. I mean, we might we we'll might see. encourage we'll see if it's true. South Africa, right? Of course. Yeah. Now it's we know it's. I mean, we know it's all over here. We it's we're finding cases all over the country now, and it won't yeah. be long before. I hope it's they truly stop travel bans tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, uh, I I think it just goes to the point the to the one thing that. And I understand the media would not understand this, but people like you and other immunologists, people consulting with public officials have to say, hey, just because there's a new variant doesn't necessarily mean it's bad news. It might be. I mean, let's be honest. It could be much worse or it could be a lot better or it could be neutral, right? I mean, Delta got a lot more people infected, but doesn't seem to be any more severe than, than the previous In fact, variant. that was proven. There was a CDC yeah. article that really showed it didn't cause more severe outcomes. It came out after a while. Um, but when it did come out, people were like, wait, but I thought it was more virulent, but it wasn't. Yeah. No, I mean, but it's worse in the sense that a lot more people get affected at once and so you have more people who are unvaccinated who were- And we have lower rates now. of vaccination. Yeah, you know, now. they're, yeah. So, um, so I guess I, I've always thought that that's, that's something that probably is important for people to recognize that Omicron may not, may be really good news, you know, so. It could know. be. And I think we need like two more weeks to really see, or maybe a little longer, but it's going to be, at least the early indications are that it could be. I'll tell you one difference, Eric, that happened um, in terms of just knowing people on the ground. So what people are saying, what the physicians are saying in South Africa, that it seems more mild and that they're like really um, heartened by this by this possibility, um, that was not said in India at the beginning of the Delta variant um, in March, because I also knew a lot of Indian physicians and they were like, this is a disaster. And yeah. it was a from the get-go at a 4% vaccination rate. So there is a different tone right now. Well, I mean, and the vaccination rate, generally speaking, in South Africa is pretty low. I mean, it's what, 30 percent Twenty-three percent yeah. Well, at that time, populations. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, they're younger there in South Africa than they are in the United States, and so their outcomes might, in general, be better. They might have more asymptomatic. And that's why, you know, it just takes time. But before everyone just freaks out, especially when you're doing measures that we know just won't work anyway. They didn't work before. There's no reason to think they would now. All right. Yeah. 
so this is my um, my working theory. I've been talking to a bunch of people in the hospital. This is uh, this may even be a thing: immunity deficiency, like within the community. And so, what I mean by this is, uh, you know, we've had, without a doubt, we've had decreased interactions with each other, going to sporting events, going to concerts, working with other people, seeing family, and so the 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 chance of us coming into contact with another virus common ones like common colds or RSV or I don't know, hand, foot, mouth disease, whatever uh, is a lot less, certainly last year. And, and I feel like what happens is that you, we're always in the steady state of immunity within a community to, for some sort of pathogen, whether it's rhinovirus or an adenovirus or some sort of virus. And so there's only a certain amount of people at any one time who can get infected with the respiratory virus. Right. And then if no one's getting infected every you know year or so, that now the amount of people susceptible is a lot higher. And so I feel like we saw this global sort of huge spike in RSV this summer. Yes, Weird yeah, times, that was a, yes. Right? You, uh, your wife is a pediatrician, saw it. Oh yeah, it was the worst, it's the worst RSV she's ever seen in her career um, right. over 20 years. And, right. and of course it hit in the summer, which has never happened in Michigan. We're always, you know, kind of starting right about now till February. It was much earlier like and it was more severe because we had kept our immune systems down, yeah. Right, I mean, I, and I, so I think just in general, that's probably true. I, is that, is that kind of, uh, is that something people talk about in immunology that there's this sort of steady state we have and that we've sort of disrupted it. And at some point we got to get it back, which means we're going to have a couple of years. We're just, you know, more sick or something because. Well, it's not only that it's taught, I mean, people do talk about it. Um, I've talked about it. And then other immunologists have talked about this pediatric immunologist in Columbia talks about it a lot, but um, it's not mainstream to talk about it because you're supposed to just talk about COVID um, and, and how to has stopped transmission with COVID. But there is no doubt that the NIH um, is very aware of this in the sense that they had a huge project that I actually once attended a meeting at the NIH called the NIH Microbiome Project. It's wound down now, but it was about that entire concept that you actually have to be exposed to pathogens. Um, and it is it is how we live with nature that we're exposed to pathogens to increase our immune diversity. And what increasing our immune diversity does is it reduces the risk of the severity of pathogens, also autoimmune diseases, cancers, and allergies. So it is that interaction with the environment of, of seeing pathogens, because we've always as humans been together and been around each other and passed back pathogens back and forth. So the NIH Microbiome Project was more of an ecologic study looking at countries where, you know, over, over restrictive practices or clean practices, you know, like let, let not seeing enough microbes led to more allergies or more autoimmune um, diseases. So um, there is no doubt that this is very known phenomenon, you know, known thing that you need that that we see pathogens and and if we don't see them for a while, our our ability to respond to them will go down. So um, so yes, I am worried. I mean, I, it made me worried when I saw that flu outbreak in your uh, in your state in, in University of Michigan because it made me. I knew that that vaccines were down in flu, and that's what made me think about the, the trust more, like you are. Um, but then I also got worried that it, that that influenza could be worse when it comes around, like RSV was worse this last. It was not only earlier but worse for children. Like I heard this, the outcomes were more severe. I mean, they got more sick, like your wife said, and that worried me. Yeah, well, and I think that's probably just because of the well, the more people certainly susceptible, right? So, um, fortunately, that's sort of that wave has passed, but I think uh, when it comes to the flu, I I think it also goes to show that mask wearing in general is probably not very helpful. Uh, I we the University of Michigan is a good example. My daughter's there, so I can tell you what they do. They have to wear masks all the time, not outside. They're not totally crazy, but they have to wear it inside anytime you're any sort of you know, class or whatever. Uh, and yeah, they had a you know massive flu outbreak. And I I know people had always told me, well, flu is you know, the reason we don't have flu last year is because we were wearing masks. And I think, yeah, I think probably other things are more effective than masks. I, I think, you know, the fact that you're not around other people more often. I think that's around, what it was. And right? no one went to work sick. I mean, no one. That too, right? You stay home. Period. Yeah. But I think the most effective strategy to actually help flu is not to go to work when you have the flu. But remember how many times that people would go to work, especially healthcare workers. I mean, to be uh, honest, yeah. I've done it. we all know that we medicated so that we could go to work because we 
had this like sense of responsibility to work and not, but um, not, I mean, there was a recent, we had a recent discussion about this in IDSA. That's probably the most effective strategy to help halt the flu is not to go to work when you actively have the flu. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I think that's, that's effectively the reason. And I think truly there was very little international travel for a while during when flu season, when the flu sort of travels out of, because it kind of just comes from Asia, doesn't it? Pretty much and spreads over the world. I don't know why we always blame Asia, but that seems to where the interaction with the different animal species are. Yeah. Then, yeah. I mean, that it kind of, the chickens. And it was just less right? interaction in general. Like I think yeah. it was like, not just travel, like we weren't seeing each other. People weren't mingling. They weren't watching games. They weren't in sports. They weren't at the Warrior Stadium. That's our, that's our team, I think. Um, <laughs> like, I Draymond much, Green, he's our guy. They're yeah. all hanging out. So, so tonight. And so, um, so it was that, it was so much less interaction. So we didn't pass around pathogens. Um, yeah, the, the masks, I also, I mean, I actually think, see very theoretically why they work and actually wrote papers on it um, and can see it really matters what type of mask it is to protect yourself. So um, it's why we wear very different types of masks in the hospitals like N95s. But I think blanket mask mandates, I've now really, um, I have to again reevaluate when I look at data because that's the right thing for any physician or researcher or epidemiologist to do is look at data and then reevaluate. So this Bangladesh randomized controlled study, which are communities randomized to giving cloth or surgical masks and saw not a very high effect, um, but a 10% reduction in symptomatic COVID among those over 60, if you, everyone masked, has now been, the raw data was released and now other statisticians, including one that I know at, at Berkeley, reevaluated the data and it doesn't even look like it did that, but it just got published in science today. So um, I'm sure those those reevaluators, those people who re- yeah, right. will write letters to science and then it may be withdrawn, but it is important like to look at data and to be fair about data and not to be political or tribal about data. And that is, what's gone on with this pandemic so much more than anything I can think of. I know HIV wasn't like this because I was there for a lot of it, not a lot, all of it. It wasn't like this. We didn't have like social media where people could put out misinformation, but also put out misinformation the other way or put out a way that like, I'm virtuous if I say that you're the worst all transmission. That's not a virtue. It's it's not a virtue to, 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 um, to eliminate, sorry, to hurt other public health problems um, and stop measles uh, vaccinations. That's not a good thing. Um, so we have to be balanced in how we do things and, and be honest and, and now turn to the metric of disease. And that's why I actually wrote a piece that I'm waiting to get published um, because, and it's political why it's not getting published, but it's really saying the strategy is um, it, we need to turn to hospitalizations like, like Singapore has. Yeah, I, I still feel like right now, it, Anyone who gets infected, first question, were you vaccinated, right? Because you shouldn't have been infected if you're vaccinated. Well, did you get the booster? Or where'd you get it? What were you doing that you was still right? And so there's still a lot of a, stig- a social stigma, stigma and shame. Yeah. yeah. And people are like embarrassed. So I go, oh, I don't know what I was doing. I thought I was doing all the right things. Like, well, you know, you never apologize for getting the measles and other things. That, I mean, they're vaccines for those, right? They just happen. And that's sort of, if you don't, if you're not ever around other people, you'll never get infected. But that's, we can't live that way. I mean, no, not, very well, the, right? not, not certainly very well. the mental illness affects not only just in children. I mean, you just said them in children. I mean, what we did to children in this country, I'm really never going to get over. Um, that uh, we had so it's much still going. school closures. It's still going. It's still yeah. going, quarantining, keeping them out of school, not um, closing on Fridays. I think Detroit decided to close yeah. in your state for slow the spread. Um, someone, someone wrote. Deep cleaning. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so. What we're doing to children um, yeah, is very, I, it, children will not forgive though. That's the thing. When they grow up, they will know that this, they didn't have to be out of school for that long. And that, I hope that, that's the message they learn. I hope we look back mm-hmm. in five years and we're, my, of course, my concern always is that people are going to look back and say, well, everything we did was, yes, they had imperfect information. And I don't think anyone will fault you for decisions you're making in March of 2020. You know, maybe yes. you said, ah, oh, this might set us down the wrong road. And yeah, you might've been right. You're right that, you know, even in, at, introducing the idea of a vaccine passport, which we know is worthless in this case, they'll say, well, maybe it'll work for the next thing. And so you worry about setting those precedents. And, um, but I hope that they actually, that political leaders pay for it because they're the ones and, and the people, public health officials, they pay for their bad decisions. I mean, Anthony Fauci has in many instances said the wrong thing. I mean, the CDC director just came out with a tweet within the last few weeks saying mask usage reduces the infection rate by 80%. 
I mean, it's, that's ludicrous. I don't think anyone, not many people really believe that. What a, one in vitro study that with mannequins, I mean, you can look around. People are not dumb. And there's, you know, common sense. Think, it's, just, it's just, it's not possibly true. I, I think actually what you just said is the right thing. Um, what, something that happened to me recently is it hit me that common sense um, hasn't been ruling some of these decisions. And I once wrote on Twitter, I said, you don't actually need a fellowship in infectious disease to see, you just actually need common sense. So what isn't common sense? When you go to a restaurant and you um, show your vaccine, pa- we do this in, in San Francisco, you show your vaccine passport, you wear your mask, and then you go and sit down and you take it off. And then you <laughs> the whole time, but then if you have to go to the bathroom, you put it on. Um, that's just common sense. Um, today, San Francisco decided that children um, have to be masked, even though they're vaccinated, asymptomatic at all times in schools. And even though they're asymptomatic and vaccinated, wind people who blow wind instruments in bands have to be tested once a week. So there's just no common sense. That's that's insane. Like it's if you wrote that down and wrote that to someone, like that's ins- that's not common sense. And we're coming up with policies that are that are that the public sees aren't common sense because there isn't some secret medical knowledge that the San Francisco DPH has that a, someone who blows a wind instrument should get tested yeah. once. Or when, you know those masks where they cut out, they have a cutout <laughs> to, to blow the saxophone. These are not, these are silly. These are not common sense. And so that actually, that's what I'm worried we're going to blow the public health trust most is, is all the non-common sense things. Because just this is basic common sense. It's not like the public, it's losing trust um, when we do things like this. So yeah, I mean, I watch those band members, the Michigan, we go to Michigan State basketball games. I watch the pet band and they're sitting there. They've all got masks on. They're playing their trumpet and they have the little covers on the end of the trumpet. I'm like, there's no way that does anything. Like, who are we fo- I mean, who are we tricking? I, I don't know. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> let's pivot again because to stuff I don't know anything about uh, with just therapeutics. And um, I know you've written a little bit about the new therapeutics that came out. And I'll just tell you my, my bias, which is that I think the therapeutics will be eh, a little effective, but not super effective. Like, I look at Tamiflu. And Tamiflu was, you know, heralded as this this breakthrough drug for treating flu, and it turned out to be like, eh, it diminishes the the severity of flu by a day or something, and it's it's somewhat helpful, but it's not like you know, a Tamiflu, huge game changer. No, Tamiflu is not a game changer. In so fact, how are these different? Are these are they? But much these better? are different. No, no, no. These are different. Like, like actually, I feel sad when people try to compare Paxlovid to. Uh, ozeltamivir, which is Tamiflu, because I've looked at the original trials of ozeltamivir, and it's true. The end point was reducing symptoms by a day, and so that you can go to work like one day earlier. And yes, that isn't that isn't the most amazing um, point, and uh, and yet it got approved because there was nothing else. But this is different, and the reason I I, I want to convince you, um, great, uh, I'm happy to be convinced. Changing aspect is is because these are very very specific antivirals that are directed against the life cycle of the virus and block it from replicating. And so that's what I mean by that is we have to not compare this to Tamiflu. We have to compare these to HIV drugs. And maybe it's because I'm an HIV uh, treater that I'm so wrapped up about these. But but the idea that you can block uh, an enzyme that will prevent the virus from replicating is the dream of an antiviral, but of course you have to have good clinical endpoints. And I'm not saying this about Molnupiravir, but I'm saying this about Paxlovid, that that's the protease inhibitor. And at least it's clinical endpoints so far, admittedly in a pretty small trial because it was ended early, about 775 people, I think, they had to stop it early because it was 89% protective of blocking hospitalizations and deaths. In not only people who were had moderate COVID, but people who are at risk for going severe COVID. It was specifically called the EPIC HR trial, but the HR meant high risk. They actually had risk factors, cardiovascular disease, renal disease, lung disease, um, um, other problems that would make them more likely to get severe COVID. And the risk of hospitalization and death in people who got the pill versus placebo was 89% lower and that's as good as a vaccine in blocking severe disease. So I'm very excited about Paxlovid. Molnupiravir looked good. It was 50% in preventing hospitalizations and deaths in the initial analysis. And then right before the FDA meeting, they redid it with all the participants. It was 30% effective. So that did bring down the enthusiasm. But on a population level, 
the reason I'm so excited is number one, there are some people that are not going to get vaccinated and um, you have to treat people with compassion and care and you want something that keeps them out of the hospital and it's oral and you just go home and you take it. And I don't think it's Tamiflu. I'm going to compare a protease inhibitor to what it is, which is a protease inhibitor for HIV and they were game changing. So can you explain the mechanism of how that works uh, and then how would it, what sort of side effects you'd be concerned about with, because, you know, people hear RNA, DNA, they go, they freak out. They think, oh, it's going to, I mean, become infertile or, you know, all the things you yeah, hear. Yeah. Let's get it right. So how no, does it work yeah. in, in blocking the, because I guess the, basically viruses get into your cells. They trick your cell into making more virus and the virus leaves, right? That's pretty yes, much what they do. We that's what RNA it does. Sequence. So what does it do? Yeah. How so does the virus do? goes in, in your cell and it gets into your host cell, you know, through its spike protein, which is the part that sticks out and that's mm-hmm. where you make the vaccines against. But inside what it does is its RNA-dependent RNA polymerase um, is, is it makes little new copies of its of the RNA using nucleosides from your from your um, from inside the host. And what molnupiravir does is a nucleoside analog. So it blocks the the RNA polymerase of the of the SARS-CoV-2 virus it's trying to make new RNA copies and this molnupiravir comes in and jams up the system because it's a nucleoside, but it's not really a nucleoside, like it's messed up. And so it can't keep on making an RNA molecule and it stops the virus from continuing to make new viral RNA copies, which would have been packaged into a virus and then gone out to the rest of the host to infect them. And then what Paxlovid is, is once you, so forget about molnupiravir, you've already made the RNA and then you take that RNA and then you, and then the host cell helps seize a piece of RNA and they're like, oh, I'm gonna make proteins from that because that's what I do, I translate. And so they made a pre- they make a big polyprotein. They make a big protein that needs to be cut up into little pieces to fit into the virus, to make the virus. And so there's a big protein and that cutting up into little pieces happens by something called the SARS-CoV-2 protease. And what the protease inhibitor does, Paxlovid, is it actually blocks um, the, protease from cutting up this big protein. And so they can't make effective viral particles. They can't assemble them and no new viral particles could be made. So Paxlovid uh, and Molnupiravir work specifically on viral enzymes. So then are they gonna be, so that's, they're very specific. They're like, Paxlovid was actually designed from scratch just for SARS-CoV-2. It it wasn't like some old repurposed drug. Molnupiravir was repurposed. It was a, a kind of a general, RNA polymerase inhibitor that they were thinking of trying to use for Ebola. And it was repurposed, but Paxlovid was like laser focused, like made directed against this particular protease. And so were the HIV protease inhibitors. And it's why they work so well. They didn't come out of a tube for something, something else. They came out for HIV. That's why I think Paxlovid is going to work really well. But anyway, so they're not, uh, okay. So then any nucleoside analog, um, the molnupiravir, kind of like ribavirin, which isn't a very good drug, you know, for uh, for RSV um, and other um, other types of RNA viruses, they can be mutagenic because they're actually blocking you making nice, like proper DNA. So they can for be mutagenic because you're making RNA, like what you, that's what you do. You make RNA to make new cells. So, but it's just five days. And so that's why I'm not worried. If you had to give it for a long period of time, I'd be worried. And just like ribavirin, we say, okay, don't try to conceive until it's washed out of your system. So four days after you've taken the five days of therapy, but I don't think they're going to, well, they're not, certainly not going to have any long-term effects because they're just going to go away. Um, but that's where the idea of not getting pregnant for four days after, and that's where the idea get, it feels sounds scary, but it's such a short period of time. So it, just to be clear, it, it just, it, this Paxlovid focuses just on the protease that is that is specific to to SARS-CoV-2. So a, yes, a it's a protease, not of a host. It's not my protease. Right. Okay. It is the protease of the virus. It was targeted. It was designed to only hurt that protease. I mean, to stop that protease from working. That's called targeted drug design. And it's what fixed HIV. I mean, it really did. Like yeah. took HIV from fatal illness to like normal life. I mean, it, these antivirals are amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question. I mean, I see people all the time, but not all the time, but I see pe- patients quite frequently who have HIV and they're like, yeah, I got HIV or they don't even, they say HIV positive, but they're like, yeah, not really. I've got some maybe. Um, exactly. So just it to, just, just change life. Yeah. 
just to be clear, I guess, to those listening who are like, what are they talking about? So, I mean, RNA, <laughs> you, you have, no, no I've, you have uh, your cell, you know, the very small, they have DNA, which is carries your genetic material. There's RNA, which is uh, used to, it, it's codes, proteins that your body makes proteins for all sorts of different things, different cells, right. different proteins. And so with viruses, it goes in there and hijacks that and uses that. And so, uh, and so basically it just prevents, the RNA is always there. It's still going to be working and making stuff. And so this is just a way of, I guess, probably just decreasing the viral load, if nothing else, so your immune system can catch up. It's probably more than anything what these, this is not going to stop every, or, you know, every uh, ribosome in the entire body, right, from making proteins. It's just going to- Exactly right. right. It's just totally, yeah. It, and the, both of these are laser actually focused on yeah. only the polymerases of the virus. Right. So- that's pretty cool. I mean, that's, uh, that's, so I hope I've convinced you that they're kind of big. I oh, think yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I don't, and they're doubt oral that... and monoclonal antibodies are so hard to give. I mean, they're oral, like you just take sure. them. Oh. Well, and, and I think you probably would agree too. Mono, uh, monoclonal antibodies, they are antibodies towards specific targets. Right. And if the virus mutates enough and changes enough, yes. those targets might, and so the, the efficacy, the, you know, effectiveness of the, 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 uh, that regimen may not be as, you know, Good that's as it exactly was, right. right? And, so and these work upstream, so they'll, the variants will have nothing to do with this. Right. Um, well, that was a lot of stuff we kind of went over. I don't yeah, know. we went a lot, was, over a lot. We fixed the world. We figured out a new pretty strategy. Much. Yeah, the new strategy I, is that um, that health departments should track cases, absolutely invariant, but they shouldn't release those numbers to the public because that's the health department's job, just like they do for influenza. And the policy and everything that we call success is on having low hospitalization from COVID. Vermont's a success, California's a success. Many places are success. 15 people in my city are in the hospital with COVID because we have an 80% vaccination rate. I'm really sorry about Michigan, it's not the same, but. Well, I mean, you know, there's nothing you do. But anyway, that's people. the metric. That's the metric. Yeah. That's what I want the metric to be. Yeah, and I would, and I probably would argue that 80% is probably not enough because, you know, at some point, you know that 20% is going to run into it. Maybe they already have, I don't know, but they're going to run into it. And you, at least in California, you're lucky that you have a fairly young population, which is not the case yeah. in other places, right? Like, that's you know, true. And that's probably that's more true. dependent on hospitalizations than anything. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's fair enough, too. And you can't control so much of this. Yeah, and so I think, you know, what the to kind of go way back, but when it comes to boosters and stuff, I, I have people ask me all the time, in the hospital, like, Hey, should I get a booster or whatever? And I, my answer, uh, tell me what you think about this. I say it, if you're someone who is at risk, you know, immunocompromised people, people who are not going to respond well to, um, the initial regimen, which is the two doses or the one dose of J and J, you probably need to get a booster, uh, just like old people, right? Old people, they get the flu vaccine. It just doesn't work very well. That's just, we know, because they just don't have the immune response right. that someone who's younger does. And so right. it is likely that they're going to need a second or a third. I mean, but you can't expect the boosters to do more than all the, the most a booster is ever going to really do is give you that long-term immunity outside of maybe, you know, within a couple of weeks of when you have your antibodies are crazy high or something, but it's not going right. to be a miracle. Actually, there was a paper um, in science that showed that, that a third shot did not change your original B cell and T cell immunity in immunocompetent individuals. So I also agree that boosters are good for over 65 for you know, compromised uh, patients and then people with a lot of medical conditions where you think they wouldn't produce such a good immune response, but it's a temporary thing for increase of antibodies. Yeah. Forever. And so we should totally eliminate this idea from young kids. I just don't even, it doesn't make oh, any I, sense I complete, whatsoever. I completely right? agree. I completely I mean, agree. They're safe, but there's a tiny risk and why introduce any tiny risk? For oh, we don't want to, we gain, don't have right? safety data on giving a third shot and, and we should not do the same kids. No, yeah. no. I mean, well, anyway. I completely agree. Well, Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It was a delight talking to you again. Uh, I like We got through I, it all. Yeah, as, just like last time. We did it all. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so people want to follow you. You keep saying you're leaving Twitter. You never do. You can't. You just, I know, you but you know what? In January, in. I yeah, am oh, going to go down, okay. though. I, I am. I, this is only because You're not, but that's anyway, okay. <laughs> okay, so it's at Monica Gandhi 9. At Monica Gandhi 9. M O C G A N D H I 9. So when this comes out, we're, we're recording this on December 3rd. This is going to come out next week. We'll okay. see where Omicron is. Maybe at this point, I, maybe pie's here and pie's going to be really delicious and it's going to be uh, totally benign and we're going to hope everyone gets it and then SARS, the pandemic just sort of ends that way. I'm hopeful, I'm maybe, hopeful about maybe Omicron. Actually not having those people yeah. Yeah. Maybe not having those people vaccinated in Africa sort of helps. If you get a real benign variant out of this, maybe you know the sort of the silver lining is that it ultimately would be helpful. 
I mean, that's that would be the hope for this entire thing to stop. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>